you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. It is a hard thing to be perfectly united in mind and thought. If you're a parent, you understand this. If you're married, you understand this. If you're a human being, you understand this. But that is what God makes available to us. So, uh, you know, I think we need to examine what are things that can divide us or keep us apart from each other. Because there's a lot of challenges that we face in actually becoming the church that the Lord desires us for to be. Uh, and, and it's going to take a lot of faith and a lot of humility and surrender on our part to fully embrace everything that the Holy Spirit, I believe, He wants to give us. A division is an us versus them situation where we constantly create new categories and criteria to divide into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller groups until it's just me and my wife, and actually I'm not even sure about her. Division is a loss of perspective on who the real enemy is. A division is always in some way relates to a loss of what our true priorities are, a church that loses its mission and its purpose. Uh, disunity and factions and infighting and division, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to be over things less important than the mission of God that will end up dividing us. So there's all kinds of attitudes that we, we can bring that can feed uh, division and attitudes that make unity difficult. Uh, if we come to this place with a consumer mentality, what am I getting out of this? What am I being filled with? What, uh, we have problems sometimes that, you know, technically the words that are said are right, but there's a spirit that's a little bit off behind those words. Another problem that leads to division is a comparison trap. Uh, beware your own sense of entitlement that comes with investment. We're the ones who give. We're the ones who do. We're the ones who... And it becomes a very unwelcoming place for those who are maybe not in a place where they're able to do the same things at that time. Uh, habitual takers. This church owes me. I've been, I'm a vested member here. This self-appointed church police. I've got to control this. I've got to fix this. This is on me. Blinds to your own stuff going on a lot of times. Blind to where your neighbor really is a lot of times. Constant complainers. If you don't give me what I want, I don't like you. Edit out the rugged individualists. If you want things done right, just need to do them yourself. I can drift into that if I'm not careful. That is poor discipleship. The church today is in crisis because we have so many rugged individualists, and we've not done a good job discipling the generations following us and the young people in our midst. There are exceptions to that rule, praise God, because that that's our future hope that the Lord will use that. Our silent judgments speak very loudly sometimes when we don't when we just withhold 
and this is an attitude, I don't, I don't have anything nice to say, so I'm not going to say anything at, uh, at all, but you know what my silence means, don't you? That can be detrimental to the unity of the church. These people aren't like me is another attitude we have. And in this culture, the people that aren't like you, the people that you don't like their thinking, the people that challenge you, you want to cut them out. And then the mind games of the enemy, where you assume the worst of other people's thinking. They don't, they don't really care. They don't really see me. They don't really... Maybe your own sense of shame can feed this as well. I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough for this. I'm, these are kind of mind games that the enemy will play with you to keep you away from Jesus Christ, to keep you from meaningfully investing in the church and the unity of the body of Christ. So unity is a special concern of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the Holy Spirit helps us stand together as Christ's body, with Christ at our head. But to be in unity with other Christians, it requires great humility on our part. And it takes a realization of your common need before God. You know, there's so many things that will divide. But it doesn't take that many things to help us stand together. You only have to realize a few things to stand united with other people. You're created in the image of God. I don't care what your race is, what your gender is, what your orientation is. You are created in the image of God. Number two, you have a problem with sin. We all share this in common. And number three, only Jesus saves. If you realize these things in humility, we're going to have all the strength that we need to stand united in Christ. We have his word, the scriptures. We have the spirit that helps us in all the between the scriptures and our relationships. Another major theme that Paul brings up in the first chapters of 1 Corinthians is the theme of wisdom, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Godly wisdom a lot of times stands opposed to the wisdom of the world. Godly wisdom versus the wisdom of the world is one of the great juxtapositions or reversals in the Christian faith. Jesus Christ was the most disruptive personality that has ever walked the face of this earth. He takes the wisdom of the world and he turns it on its ear. In fact, Jesus was viewed as such a threat by con the conventional wisdom of his day, even the religious wisdom of his day, that religious people had him murdered. That's how disruptive Jesus was and his teaching was. So Jesus' messiahship, it was first of all unlikely, it was unexpected, but ultimately it was unwanted and threatening. And now to this very day, the disciples of Jesus follow in this legacy of godly wisdom that is viewed by the world as foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent 
I will frustrate. He goes on to say this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know, uh, this is our legacy. This is what we take on when we sign up to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Does it really surprise you that you're going to catch some flack for trying to do things Jesus' way in this world? A God who gives up divinity to become a human? Why would a God do that? A God who comes as a little baby in a manger to the fanfare of sheep and goats and the smell of cow manure. What's, what worldly sense does that make? Is that an announcement of power? A rabbi who chooses fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples. Oh, and I'll take this zealot and I'll take this embezzler who's going to betray me. Yeah, let's throw him in the mix too. A king who shows up riding on a donkey. A savior who doesn't save himself. A God who allows himself to be tortured, to suffer, and to be killed when he has the power to stop it all. And a God who expects you to become like Jesus. God believes in you more than you believe in yourself. We stand in this legacy. And this is a, a, another theme, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. There's a great reversal there. And another way Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians is the issue of power. Where does power come from? Where does the power of the Christian life, the triumphant life in Jesus Christ, where does that power come from? The power of the triumphant life for us as Christians. It's not found in our personal strength, our talents, our abilities. It's not found in chance or luck. It's not found in the opportunities that we've been given. It's not found in our wealth. It's not found in knowledge or intelligence. The power of the gospel is revealed through humility and weakness. That's the legacy that we stand in. Paul says it this way, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. We read in Acts that Paul, when he was in 1 Corinthians, he feared for his life and he was about to tuck tail until the Holy Spirit said, I have many people in this city and no one's going to harm you. And so he stayed there in fear and trembling, working in that little church, to plant that church. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. God's power. Where do we find God's power? It's not vouchsafed in the individual. The power of God resides in the Holy Spirit. The power of God is in his gospel. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is where the power lies. Humanly speaking, it was weird that Paul, coming in such an unimpressive way to that church, would have an impact on so many lives. But the power and the message we have been given is not in the messenger. The power we need to live the triumphant life, it was never meant to come from you personally. Your job, my job, is to use the mustard seed of faith that I have. I just use this mustard seed and see what God grows out of it. And sometimes mustard seeds, they seem to grow a little bit slow, and we have to patiently wait on the Lord and not give up our hope. But this wisdom that we have, that we've been given, Paul says more about this. We do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That's our fifth point this morning. What is the mind of Christ? Simply put, the mind of Christ is Jesus' way of thinking and understanding and doing. That's the mind of Christ. So we, we've looked at this before, and uh, just here's a few highlights of things that we can read in Scripture about what the mind and thinking of Jesus Christ was like. It's so humble, the mind of Christ. It is a mind that doesn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but empties himself to be a servant and a servant to others. That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ keeps the priorities as the priorities. Seeking the kingdom of God first and his righteousness above everything else. Sermon on the Mount. Faith and trust. Jesus Christ, you look at him. He never once doubted the goodness of God. That encourages me because there are a lot of times in my life I have doubted the goodness of God, the goodness of his plan on a personal level, that is he going to take care of this immediate need and this immediate situation? Because I feel like I'm adrift here, Lord. I feel like I'm in this by myself. Jesus Christ, he did not think that way. He knew his father's heart. He trusted his father's heart. This is faith. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. Trust in God's intentions toward you, universally and on an individual level. Compassionate and generous. 
because Jesus was sure of the Father's love, Jesus is so generous. He doesn't have to be vindictive. When people do him dirty, he's so filled with confidence in God that he can say, forgive them, Father. They just don't know what they're doing. It's his heart that just views the vastness of the love of God as an inexhaustible fountain of every good thing. It displays this trust in the heart of God who gives and gives and gives and gives more. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to speak of God's mission and what God's purpose is. And this is our sixth point. Uh, God's agenda for you. What does he want from you? What's he trying to do in your life? What's he trying to do in this church? Well, he uses certain metaphors to help us understand that. Planting is one of those metaphors. And then one of those metaphors is building. God is trying to build something among us. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together church are that temple. We are that temple. So how do you build a temple for God? The only foundation sufficient to build on? Jesus Christ. And then consider the quality of your investment in your hope in Jesus. Do you put your energy and your resources into Jesus' hands for the good of the church for the good of things that invite the kingdom of God. You get a choice in that. You can invest with the best you have or you can give God the scraps. That's in your hands. And if it's not much that you care about and you're just going through the motions and you're here for a little bit, that's okay to be in that place. That's okay. Don't stay there forever because that's not a safe place either. That's a vulnerable place. What's the fire rating of the materials you're using to build the most important things of your life? What do you think is the most important things of your life? Your experiences you have, we hold those precious. The children you are raising, we hold them precious. This, this marriage you have, we hold that pre precious. Uh, to, put, to do meaningful work, we are created to, to be stewards. And that's so important for us too. But without Jesus Christ as the center of all of that, all of these other things in our power and strength and the best we're doing, 
It's like, it's like trying to push water uphill. But I think when we have our best invested in true priority of his kingdom first, seek first the kingdom of God, those things that we noticed we haven't been able to control and plug in and hold back and protect and why is this not going like I thought? And what is this business now? This health crisis, this whatever. When we're trying to do it on our own, it feels overwhelming. But with Jesus Christ as the priority of our lives, that's when the pieces, they just... And some of us have known this and experienced this. And it's grown our faith and our trust in the Lord. God's Spirit in our midst. He talks about the Spirit in our individual lives later on, that you individually are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. And that's why what you do in your body, it matters to God. But now he's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the church. And the real treasure that we have in the church is his spirit working through us, among us, in spite of us at times, to create us into the image of Christ. This also relates to godly wisdom. And then I didn't quite know how to describe this, this seventh point, but the spirit in which you hold things, it matters. The attitudes of the heart that you carry, it really matters because that it determines the trajectory and the way forward uh, and what is growing in the heart, the spirit uh, the spirit in which you hold things, that attitude, it determines the outcome. So we looked at two different verses. Already you have all you want, and all things are yours. So one's in chapter 3, one's in chapter 4. And this is just an example. I don't know if it's a good one, but to try to illustrate this point, because they're very similar phrases, but Paul uses those in a very different way. One of the key differentiators of the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world is the spirit that lies behind your actions. And that's why Jesus was so concerned with the condition of the heart. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And whatever wiggle room you thought you had before but in the letter of the law, I'm legally keep. Jesus does something that's going to force your heart to be revealed. And he cares about the heart. And this is kind of, I'm pulling this out of Paul's heart as well and his concern. The spirit in which you hold things, it matters. You can have a very similar circumstance, whatever that circumstance is. Okay, let's just say, all the things that are broken here in the Eugene Church of Christ. Do you have a list in mind? Some of us have a list. Some of us, pretty big list, maybe. Some of us, maybe that's a short list. I don't know. We can have that as our circumstance. And the spirit in which we hold the challenges and the circumstances we face, it will determine a large extent the outcome that we that we see. 
if I have to focus on fixing this church with my ideas, with my strength and my energy, what I can obtain by my own strength and cunning, that's going to produce a very different fruit than just continually focusing and keeping my eyes on the generosity of God. I can't fix this church. I preach my little heart out, and those words just bounce around sometimes. I don't know. I don't control how that gets in there. It's all on God. The circumstances of your life, it's all on Him. And this a spirit of the Lord has this. This is, this is for Him to determine. My job is to, to be a faithful steward, to speak life to the situations that I can speak life and encourage where I can encourage, to serve where I can serve, and to trust. And when God does good and amazing things, to just thank Him and praise Him for that and recognize His blessings. So I can have a spirit uh, of gratitude and thanksgiving versus a spirit of, look what I've done. I know the problem. We're going to fix this. We're going to get rid of this thing. We're going to get rid of these people, and then the church is going to be fine. I'm going to do this in my own strength. One exalts pride, the other humility. One is all about focusing on the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of our Lord. And the other, it's, I'm the one with the answers. I know what the problems are. It's the exaltation of the self, the spirit in which you hold things. It's critical. It's critical. The final theme that we'll close with this morning that I see in these first chapters of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which is written in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This letter, it models for us what good discipleship looks like. Discipleship is crucial for the church. We're going to live or die by the discipleship that we are involved in. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Who do we have that we can imitate? Who's teaching us how to do this life, live this triumphant life faithfully? Who can we talk to about the struggles we face and the, the issues and the temptations? Who can speak wisdom and encouragement into our life circumstances? Paul even sends Timothy for this exact purpose of discipleship. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, whom is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. It's modeling. Modeling. And it's so crucial uh, as a part of what we do in discipleship. Who do you have in your life that can tell it to you straight? Well, not very many people. We tend to distance ourselves from people who make us uncomfortable or challenge us in any way. Do you have the humility you need to accept the truth and the hard things loved ones say to you? Who's helping you 
even ask questions of your own heart. Not, and and you've got to be wise about this. People, there's a lot of people that are not safe. And you, who you just, you need to learn and you need to find people to be able to share the realities of your heart with and who can say and you trust them to say difficult things that you need to hear. The Lord will provide those people. Uh, ask the Lord for that. Ask the Lord to give you that slowly uh, so you're not overwhelmed. He's good that way. And that could come through a spouse. That could come through a parent. That could come through a child. That could come through a friendship. That could come through a sermon or some other word that is spoken of encouragement. Another point is, are you living a kind of life where you can say, like Paul, I urge you to imitate me. Do, do what I'm doing. Do what I'm doing, and you will grow in the image of God. You will grow in what it means to be a faithful Christian. Look at me, the way I spend my resources, the way I spend my time, the way I'm doing things. If you follow me, you're going to grow. You're going to be challenged. Things are going to change. That's an uncomfortable thing for us to say. And if you're not living your life in such a way that you can say, come on, follow me as I follow Christ, there's a problem there. There's a heart problem there. What is keeping you from being an example to other people? Uh, another question, where have you given up the fight against sin in your life? I've just given up. It's not getting any better. Just leave me alone to follow, wallow in my own filth. You do you, I'll do me. This is, I know it's not great, but this is what I got, and this is the way I'm going to make it work. Where are you giving up? Where are you stopping your fight against sin? Where has your love for Christ grown weak? He can help you. He can change that heart. He can help you by what he's doing in this church. Not because we have it all right as a church, but because he inhabits our relationships. He's in our midst. Is the power of the kingdom of God recognizable in the fruit of your life? Can you say, I'm not the same person I used to be? Do you notice those changes coming? Do you trust those changes? You have a desire to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Do you have that desire? Well, Dad, you can come up. That's an eight-point sermon. And I don't know how good it is. Honestly, it's just way too much information. But here are those themes that we looked at this morning. And I would encourage you with this. If anything that was said, if there's a certain shimmer to it, a little bit of pain maybe, a little twinge of conviction, a little invitation, 
whatever that little word is, just take that. That may be the Holy Spirit at work to help you see something about your life, to help encourage you, to help you turn toward Christ a little bit more. You know, this amazing letter that was written in 1 Corinthians, it is, it is a beautiful thing. And it just, it invites us to remember our priorities and to remember what is really important, to own our own stuff, and to invite the Lord in to be the Lord in truth and to change our lives. Uh, if you have needs this morning, if you would like the prayers of this church, if there's some way we can encourage you, you know, that's what we're about in this place. And you can come find me up here while we stand and sing an invitation song together this morning.